What we see here is a bold proclamation of the gospel, doing exactly what Jesus said it would do, namely going to the ends of the earth. And with that, a challenge that we would fall in line and be disciples just like we see in this book. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of Shipwrecks and Snake Bites with Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text is found in the book of Acts, chapters 27 and 28, in which Dr. Luke chronicles the Apostle Paul's final journey. Early on, Pastor Paul asks some important questions. What do we do with Paul's shipwreck story? And how is this narrative intended to affect us? If you have not yet read this passage, you'll find it's an exciting and Christ-honoring journey. Here's part one of Shipwrecks and Snakebites. You turn to the last two chapters of Acts. Our sermon focuses on these last two chapters, and we do affirm Paul's exhortation to Timothy to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. So what I'd like to do to begin with is to read these last two chapters of Acts Uh, It is a long narrative, but I think it will help us as we work through the text this evening. So, beginning in Acts 27, verse 1, I'll read through to the end of the book. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, embarking in a ship of the Adramatium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, and the fast there is a reference to the Day of Atonement, which actually places this narrative around this time of year, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, 
Supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cowder, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, to be encouraged, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, be encouraged, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. When they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. 
But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on the planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people, or literally the barbarians, showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are with regard to this sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. 
Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And thus reads the word of the Lord. Perhaps my favorite story concerning this portion of God's word concerns Oscar Wilde when he was a young man interviewing at the University of Oxford to read classics. And it quickly became apparent to the interview panel that this young man in front of them was quite arrogant. He was obnoxious. And they decided to humble him during the interview. Now, a useless fact for you, Acts 27 is about the hardest Greek in the whole of the New Testament. Strange vocabulary, difficult syntax, unusual grammar, And so the interview panel gave Wilde a copy of the Greek New Testament. They asked him to turn to Acts 27 to read and to translate on the fly. To their dismay, he turned to this chapter. He read and translated perfectly, having never seen it before. And so they were quite annoyed that their plan had backfired, and they stopped him a paragraph in. That'll be enough, thank you. At which point he says, please let me go on. I want to see how this story finishes. Few of us will ever face such issues. Regardless, I think actually there is a much bigger problem, whatever the language. There is a much bigger issue that confronts all of us this evening as we get to these last two chapters in Acts, and that is simply the question of what do we do with this narrative? What do we do with Paul's shipwreck story? Strange chapter on the end of this wonderful book about Paul and a snake. To put it another way, how is this narrative intended to affect us? We would readily affirm that every time we open the Bible, we want the Lord to be at work in us, changing our lives. And there's certain portions of God's word where it's easy to see the application that would come to us. But when we get to Acts 27 and 28, it's just a very long narrative, somewhat obscure, that I think we all struggle to know what to do with. And in fact, we could extend that observation further all the way back to chapter 21 of Acts. 21 through 28 is one long section, and you'll remember from 21 onwards, we just keep reading of Paul standing trial. 
one trial after another. Four times he stands trial, and never is there a verdict given. The Jews have brought a charge against him, and he keeps standing before different judges, as it were, and nobody is willing to accuse him. Nobody's willing to say he's guilty. And then Paul appeals to Caesar, which leads to this shipwreck narrative, and then the, the chapter at the very end where he's under house arrest. And we could even argue that it finishes somewhat as an anticlimax. If anything, we're looking forward to when Paul stands before Caesar and we don't get it. So what do we do with Acts 21 through 28? How are these last two chapters intended to change our lives, to reorient the way in which we live? Now, without being overly simplistic, the answer comes by way of one word, and that word is context. Every time we study a passage of Scripture, we must be mindful of the context. And it's often when we give due diligence to the context, when we give our attention to what's going in and around the passage, that its significance comes to light. And I don't just mean the Scripture that immediately precedes it, though that is part of a contextual study, but there's so much more to consider than that. And so what I want to do this evening is simply to work through the various layers of context that go into this passage so as to see not only its significance within the book of Acts, but its significance for us. And what we find is that it's not something of an anticlimax. It's not something of a meaningless narrative on the end of this book. We might even argue it is the dramatic center of the book of Acts. What we see here is a bold proclamation of the gospel, doing exactly what Jesus said it would do, namely going to the ends of the earth, and with that, a challenge that we would fall in line and be disciples just like we see in this book. So we'll begin by thinking through what I call the cultural context. We'll begin by thinking through the cultural context, that is, what was the cultural milieu into which Luke was writing as he penned this narrative? There are at least three points of information that is very helpful to know as we read 27 and 28. The first is that in Luke's time, there was a pervasive belief in what we call divine retribution. Luke was writing in a day and age where there was a pervasive belief in divine retribution, meaning it was believed in Luke's day that if you did something wrong, one of the gods would cause harm, wreak havoc in your life. Or let's flip that the other way and say, if something catastrophic were to happen in your life, the common interpretation in Luke's day would have been that somehow you had offended one of the gods, divine retribution. Secondly, it's important to know that in Luke's day, there was a pervasive belief in what we call religious pollution. Religious pollution. And that is the belief that even if you were innocent, if you were to associate with somebody who had offended the gods, you would now be susceptible to that same chaos that was coming their way. You hadn't necessarily offended them, but by virtue of association with the guilty party, you were standing in line for that same punishment religious pollution. And then thirdly, and, and most simply, 
In Luke's day, it was understood that sea travel was very, very dangerous. It's not what it is today. To go to sea, especially at certain times of year, would have been a perilous endeavor. And so when you put all of those factors together, you start to see the significance of this shipwreck narrative at the end of Acts. We actually have a biblical precedent for these principles coming together in the Old Testament. You may have already been thinking of it as I was describing those factors, and it is, of course, in the book of Jonah. There's a man who is guilty, who has offended the one true God. There are the sailors who are innocent and yet associate with Jonah. And sure enough, the storm comes. The situation is not all that different here, except for the fact that the question is still out with the jury as to Paul's innocence. Trial after trial after trial. Is this man guilty of the charges that have been brought against him? Then he appeals to Caesar, and he gets on a ship, and off they go. Paul, the accused, with many innocent sailors, and they go to sea. And we notice this wonderfully suspenseful narrative that Luke writes for us. He begins with Paul advising the crew, don't do this. This is perilous. I don't think we should go. And of course, they ignore him and they set sail. Very quickly, danger comes. We read about the tempestuous wind, the northeaster, striking the boat. It actually occurred to me when I studied this narrative that I have sailed this portion of the oceans. And more than that, I've experienced the northeaster. It was many years ago, and I wasn't on a small sailing ship. Praise the Lord, I was on an aircraft carrier. And I remember very clearly as we were passing along this portion of the ocean, the navigator of the carrier made an announcement as to the strength of the wind in case anybody wanted to go up onto the flight deck and experience it. And so I did. I went up with some buddies of mine. We opened the hatch onto the flight deck, and we couldn't stand up. We laid down on the deck because the wind was so strong. And like fools, we crawled up the flight deck right up to the very edge of the ski ramp that the planes would launch off. And we lay there looking directly into this wind for some 10 minutes. We couldn't speak because it was so noisy. And when we retreated and went back down, My hair was up and my face was the same color as my hair. <laughs> Had windburn from 10 minutes. It was an incredibly strong wind. What we were able to do because of the size of our vessel was to turn into the wind, which is the best thing to do when you come across such powerful force. And Luke draws attention to the fact that we could not turn into the wind. Literally, he says, we couldn't turn eye to eye with the wind. And so they were at the mercy of the wind, hitting side on to the vessel. And so this is really, really bad news. And at halfway through the chapter, Luke writes, verse 20, all our hope of being saved was at last abandoned. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Dr. Luke, who also wrote the New Testament's Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. Luke had likely accompanied the Apostle Paul on his final voyage. Pastor Paul has shown us Luke's narrative, quote, is a bold proclamation of the gospel going through, as Christ said it would, 
to the ends of the earth. God causes the gospel to spread even during a calamity, and he uses us. In these troubled times, are we ready to help extend God's plan of salvation? Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you'd like to learn how to help us continue this vital ministry, visit our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Donations to make a gift of any size. Listen tomorrow for part two of Shipwrecks and Snake Bites from Pastor Paul Twiss. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.